I'm turning now to the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And our title this evening is God Appeals to Our Souls. And I shall be looking uh, at this second chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah in a kind of expository manner because here are the great appeals to the soul of Almighty God. This is a prophecy given some 700 years before the coming of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about our present age. It is about a period that the prophet calls the last days. And when he uses that term, he means the days of Christ, the days of Messiah, the last age of the earth, which is the time between the coming of Christ, which was over 2,000 years ago, and the end of the world, when the predictions and the prophecies are that Christ shall return in power and in glory. And that period of time, however long, that age is what is meant by the prophecies of old as the last days, the last age. And Isaiah looks forward to that time in this great prophecy. And he describes the present. And he describes in this chapter one major thing, and that is the work of God in this age, in the saving of souls. Saving people out of this world, out of godlessness, and preparing them for eternity. And the prophecy is about that. And I'd like to go through these verses. They're so remarkable and so wonderful. It says in the first verse, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it says that because the prophecy is cast as an appeal to the Jews of that time. It is cast as an appeal to them. This is what God will do. This depicts his mercy and his kindness. And you, that generation, should turn to him also and should repent and believe in him. And so the address is to them. But the prophecy proper begins in verse 2. It shall come to pass in the last days. So it's quite clear where Isaiah, inspired by God, is going. And he uses poetic language to describe the coming age, our age. He says that the mountain of the Lord's house. Well, uh, the Lord's house in those days, in Old Testament times, was literally upon a mount. Mount Zion, the temple mount. The temple was the Lord's house and it was on Mount Zion. 
But here he's using the temple as a picture of something different which is to come. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house. In the prophet Isaiah and in Jeremiah also, mountain uh, quite frequently speaks of civil power, a kingdom, a nation. There'll be a nation. And the Lord's house, or the equivalent of it, shall be established. Now that word established can mean a number of things. It can often be used, obviously, to mean something will be made firm. Something will be made stable. That's literally the basis of the English word. But the Hebrew word translated here, establish, means set up. This is about something new. In the last age of the earth, with the coming of Christ, something new is to be set up. The Lord's house of the future will be set up newly in a new shape and form. Of course, it's the Church of Christ. It's the New Testament church, which is prophesied. And Isaiah makes that much, much clearer as the book goes on. It shall be established in the top of the mountains. In other words, it will be prominent throughout the world. It will be a major kingdom. It won't be like earthly kingdoms. He goes on to say that in other chapters. It won't be like earthly kingdoms with power and an army and taxes and people in subjection to it in all departments of their lives. It'll be different from that. It'll be a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of people who come to Christ and find him and know him. And by virtue of that, they're said to be citizens of the kingdom of God, being prepared for heaven. It shall be set up in the top of the mountains. It will be prominent in every land and shall be exalted, made effective and powerful above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. That's tremendous language. This is now for all nations. It's not, say, just for the Jews. This is for all lands. This is a kingdom that will be for all. Those nations will continue to exist, or their successor nations. But the kingdom of Christ will be represented in all of them. In effect, given time, it will be the biggest empire in the world. But it will be an empire that grows not by power, not by love, but but rather not by force, but by love. Look at the words here. All nations shall flow unto it. Flow. What an interesting word. The Hebrew word for flow there comes from a root which means, this will surprise you, sparkle. Sparkle. But it's used in Hebrew as an illustration of happiness, a fast-flowing river that jumps and sparkles in the light. It's, it's a picture of happiness and movement and flowing. This kingdom 
People won't come into it because they've been conquered or because they've been forced to come into it or frightened into it, ordered into it. They'll come into it rather like the movement of a river because we know it's the force of gravity. It comes down from the higher ground, from the hills. But to all appearances, it flows by itself. And that's the idea of the poetry here. Into this kingdom, people will come voluntarily because they need to come and they want to come and give themselves to the Lord and seek his mercy and seek conversion and trust in Christ who made it possible for them to be saved. All people from all nations shall flow into it happily and voluntarily. And verse 3, many people, not literally every person in every nation, but many people, immediately, verse 3 qualifies verse 2, in case we should misunderstand. Everybody won't be saved. Everybody won't be converted. Everybody won't seek and find the Lord. But many will. Verse 3, many people shall go and say, now they've come into the kingdom, but look what these are doing. Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. There will be people who are converted to God, and they will make this known to others. It'll be their great privilege and desire to win others to God, to Christ, to tell them about free forgiveness and new life and conversion and heaven. Many people will be saved themselves and they'll say, come ye, come from where you are and come into this kingdom and into this experience. And they'll say, let us go up and up is right. Of course, it's the Temple Mount, but let us go up because this is a higher life. This is a better life. This is a vast improvement. We were once worldlings and we just lived for material things and we were buffeted around by the world and there was no eternal purpose in our lives and then we were converted and we found the Lord and we had a new level of life and we had blessing from God and we were set on the road to eternal heaven. That's up. That's a better life, a higher life, a holy life, a life striving for purity and sinlessness, a life with the help of God. No wonder the poet Isaiah and the prophet uses this language, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He uses the old language to describe the new church into the future and he God will teach us of his ways what are his ways what are the distinctive ways of God well to call us to seek forgiveness to call us to free pardon to new life a changed life to know God's power blessing in our lives to live holy lives, to walk for him and serve him, to pay homage and worship to him.
Those are his ways. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. And then, interesting language at the end of verse 3. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In the last age, when Christ comes, when Messiah comes, something amazing will happen. The law of God and his word, the gospel that saves souls, will go out from Jerusalem. And so it did. When Christ came, what happened? Well, he allowed himself, after living a life of working hundreds and hundreds of wonderful, compassionate miracles, healing miracles, well, it came to the point where he allowed himself to be arrested and taken and grossly, unjustly tried and nailed to a cross and suffer and die. But it was the plan of God. He would suffer and die, and as he did so, God would put upon him and his holy soul all the guilt of all people in the world and in the history of the world who would ever turn to him and trust in him and be forgiven by him. He would bear on their behalf the punishment due to them for all their sin and godlessness. And then he would rise again from the dead and he would ascend into heaven and having taught his disciples and commissioned them, they would preach the gospel, beginning with the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, beginning with the conversion of 3,000 fiercely antagonistic, nationalistic Jewish people who were converted to Christ, followed by another 5,000 a few days later, and thousands. And then persecution would drive so many of them out of Jerusalem, and they would take the news of Christ, the good news, that's what gospel means, good news, and preach it in cities and towns, and the great work of spreading the gospel by the apostles would begin. And the gospel would spread tremendously quickly through the world of those days. And in due time, it would even be adopted by the emperor of Rome as the official religion of Rome. Not that that was necessarily a good thing, but it showed the tremendous effect of the spread of the gospel, starting at Jerusalem, where Christ died, where the gospel was first preached, where people were first called to trust in him. And then here's a characteristic of the age in which we live. Verse 4, God, he, shall judge among the nations, which means that he'll be at work, working in the hearts of individuals, judging them. Has he judged you? By judge, it means he will disclose to you your sin and how much you need him and how far away you are from him and how doomed and condemned you are 
without him. He'll disclose that to you in your heart. And you'll feel that you're a lost sinner. And you're far away from God. And you need your creator. And you need to be reconciled with him. And come to him and find him. And have his love and his converting power to change you and bless you. It's said here by the prophets in this word, he shall judge among the nations. He'll be exercising a kind of judgment, making us aware, and shall rebuke many people. Isaiah in this poetic prophecy frequently says the same thing twice in slightly different words so that the meaning is abundantly clear. He will rebuke many people. Dear friend, it sounds strange, but may you be one of those who he rebukes. And you feel you're under the rebuke and the condemnation of God for all your sin and for the state of your life and for your unbelief and for your rejection of him. Because that's the beginning of blessing. To feel my need brings me to God. On my knees, as it were, asking for conversion, asking for forgiveness. He shall rebuke many people, and they, listen to this language, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks, and shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What do you think he means? Well, I'll tell you. When God works in your heart, no longer are you filled, say, with nationalistic pride. I hate the people of this nation or that nation. That's what's happened for centuries, isn't it? I hate this one, I hate that one. And when war is declared or trouble or disagreement, everybody picks up the sword, the gun, the bomb, and there's trouble and strife. Yes, sometimes you've got to fight defensive wars. But the point is, when you come to God, your heart is changed. You're not thinking in those terms. I hate my neighbor. I wish I didn't have this person, that person around me. You don't hate, despise, take offence at, object to. You beat your swords, your antagonism, your hostility into plowshares. Now you've become a Christian. Your heart is changed. You look at that awkward neighbour or person in the office or nation or whatever and you say, I wish they could be saved. I wish I could get through to them and pray to them and win them for Christ. I was just like that. But God has worked in my life and now I have a different attitude. That's what the prophet means. You come to Christ as a great change takes place in your aspirations, your intentions, your aims, and one of them is you beat your swords into plowshares your hostility into soul winning and reaching others. 
And then the great appeal, O house of Jacob, verse 5, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now I'm going to spend just one or two minutes very quickly going through some of the verses that follow and then we'll come back to this wonderful fifth verse. But this is the condemnation that God has for us when we're away from him. Very quickly, verse 6. Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, God has thrust you away. That's the Hebrew. Translated forsaken, God has done something vigorous, he's thrust you away. Thou hast forsaken thy people, he's forsaken us, because they be replenished from the east. You may just be interested to know that there are four fulls in these verses. The word full occurs four times. And this is the first time in this sixth verse. Only the translators, to be refined, have translated with a more com- translated it with a more complex word. They've said, because this is the reason why God is against us, if you're not converted. Because they be replenished from the east. That word replenished is filled. Because they've been filled from the east. What does that mean? Well, in the east, in those days, at any rate, was godless culture to the east of the Jews, was godless pagan culture. And the charge against them is that they've preferred that to their own culture, the worship of God, the one true God. They've said, we'll abandon that and we'll adopt godless, anti-God, pagan culture, which disposes of moral standards and lives as you like, and so on. And we've done that. Look at it happening in our society when all that is godly about marriage and gender and almost everything else and the sanctity of life is being abandoned and anything goes today. And we've adopted the culture of unbelief and moral liberty. Do as we please. And we're living in the me, me, me culture. And we've abandoned God and we pay no homage. We're like those people. You read about them and you hear about it here and there. And they take a tenancy on a house or a flat. And in no time they stop paying the rent. And they evidently don't intend to pay it. Now I know in these days there's a lot of hardship behind defaulting. But they don't intend to pay it. And it goes on for ages. And it takes long, long time for the landlord, whoever he or she may be, to recover their property. And when they recover it, they find the tenants who never paid the rent have trashed it. And they've pulled out all the wires and turned everything upside down and ripped and shattered everything they could. That's like us, human beings in this world. Don't pay homage. Stop worship. 
Don't thank God. Don't give him the glory and the credit. Don't seek him. Don't learn of him. Won't serve him. Convince ourselves he isn't there. Reject him, laugh at him, slander him, scorn him. And then trash his world, which is full of wars and inequality and hardship and exploitation and lies. Amazing how much we're pictured by that. Therefore, God has thrust away his people because they've been filled from the east. And then in verse 7, there's a couple of fulls. Their land, second full, is full of silver and gold. They're just for possessions and gain and wealth and what they can have and hold. Neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land also is full of horses. Neither is there any end of their chariots. Security, that means. Armies. What we want is material things and security. Those of our gods. Well, certainly, to be adequately provided for is a right thing. And to have some security is a right objective. But that's what people live for. That's what they worship and want above anything else. No God. Verse 8, there's another, a fourth full. Their land also is full of idols, the work of their own hands, which their own fingers have made. That's our present society. Is that you as well? I worship people. I worship celebrities. I worship athletes. I worship wealthy people, successful people. I love the chat shows. I love to hear their anecdotes, their stories. This is a wonderful world. I worship substance, objects, things, things I can have. I worship my car. I worship my house. Is that you? Idols of all kinds and nothing for God. Now that's very negative. But that's the trouble. That's why God won't have us, won't deal with us, will judge us at the end of time. And look at this. I, could go, I won't go all the verses, I'll be over time. But look at verse 10. The uh, prophet in this great poetic prophecy now gives rotten advice, but he does it deliberately to jar us. Enter into the rock. And hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord. Think of what will happen to you on the day of judgment. And go and hide in the caves and in the rocks. And conceal yourself in dust. Of course you can't. You can't hide from God. When that day comes, all the slanders and the unbelief and the prevarication and putting off God and preferring this world will be swept aside and we'll have to give account for the lives that we've lived. And then verse 11 and so on shows how the proud, proud unbelievers will be bowed down and all the things they trust in will be worthless before them and in their estimation. So with time coming to conclusion... Let me just go back to verse 5. Oh, house of Jacob, 
Look at that word, oh. It's God pleading with us. He stoops to plead with us. Oh, house of Jacob, but think of us. Come ye, come, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's God who appeals to you, friends. It's Christ in particular who suffered and died to save a people for himself. He appeals to you. He's sovereign. He has complete authority. If you turn to him, he can save you and change you. He can rebuild your life. And furthermore, it's God who appeals and God has utmost integrity. If you come to him and you hold him to his promise, Lord, I come. I'm coming. I repent of my sin, sincerely and truly. I give my life to thee. You don't have to think, will he accept me? Will he bless me? Of course he will, because he has perfect integrity. His name is at stake in this. If he's commanded you to come and he's promised you blessing, he will keep that promise when you come with a sincere heart before him. O house, come ye, and he has all power. Furthermore, never forget, Christ has been to Calvary. If he's gone as far as that, to suffer and to die in excruciating agony, to bear your punishment for you, can you have any doubt that he will do the easy thing for him and change your life? It's God who calls you. Christ, in particular, the second person of the Godhead. Come ye, come from far away, far from God. Come close, come right up to him in your heart and humble yourself before him and ask him to forgive you and to change you and to make you his child. And dear friends, he will. Does he have terms? Only come. Can you imagine this? Somebody gives you a house. They just give you a house. You've got a fairly large family, let's say. It's a large house. You could never afford it. You could never buy it. It's a new house. It's perfect. This is just a dream. Where is this illustration going? Somebody gives me a house. There's a catch in it, surely. There's something to be done, some duty, some requirement. No. The person says, here is the key. All you have to do 
is turn it in the lock. Nothing more? No. Nothing harder? No. Nothing that takes time? Perhaps a lifetime? Even longer than a long mortgage? No. Instantly. Turn that key in the lock. A child could do it. And many children have done it. And the house becomes yours. Those are the terms of conversion. Come. Simply hand over. Go on your knee. Repent of your sin. Ask for salvation. And you're the Lord's. And he will demonstrate to you his kindness and his love and his power. Soon you will know it. You will be certain. And your prayers will be answered. And you'll rejoice as a child of God. Come ye, says Isaiah. Come ye. That's the call. That's the appeal of God to every heart. Let's pray together. O God, our gracious Heavenly Father, help each one of us, work in every heart, draw us to thyself through Christ, the only Saviour. Bring us to trust in him, bring us to regret and lament our past lives and to yield to thee. O Lord, give us the life of holiness and truth and happiness in Christ and take us all the way to glory. We ask these things in the name of Christ, the only Saviour, for his sake. Amen.